0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Ask the Expert. No, this isn't Steph. This is Rebecca. But I'm here to let you know that there is now a part two to Misunderstood Queens. So sit back and enjoy the rest of the conversation between Steph and Valerie.
1: The Tudors Dynasty Podcast. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast, and now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Hello again, Tudor family. Welcome back to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host, Steph Store, and on today's Ask the Expert, I'm so happy to introduce you to historian Valerie Shute. Valerie is here today to discuss misunderstood and forgotten queens of England. Let's talk about Jane Seymour. I think up until this point uh, in our conversation, we've been trying to kind of dispel the negative misconceptions about a lot of these women who were wrongly accused of different, you know, awful things. In the case of Jane Seymour, she is positioned as perfection and she's never done anything wrong and she's just the best of the best and You know, she's everything that Henry VIII could have asked for. I think that it turned out that way because she was the one that gave him a son and she died early and everybody feels bad for her. And not to suggest that she wasn't great, but was she as perfect in every way as we tend to think of her as?
0: I think you're exactly right that the myth around Jane Seymour comes from the fact that she gave Henry his only legitimate son and that she died in childbirth. So she performed her duty as queen, you know, as she was supposed to, she continued the dynasty and she did it. And two, she died early into the marriage. She died in childbirth and really what more noble way could Henry have hoped, you know, one of his wives to go. Other than dying, giving him a son. So she wasn't around long enough necessarily to get caught up in the religious debates that, you know, Anne Boleyn and uh, Catherine of Aragon got caught up in, or even Catherine Parr later. And she didn't, you know, she wasn't accused of extramarital affairs because she wasn't around long enough. So I think you're exactly right that her untimely death. And the fact that she gave Henry VIII a son has really contributed to her being seen as the perfect, you know, his perfect wife. And that's who he's buried with. And I mean, whenever Henry later on, even when he was married to someone else, his family portrait that he had at Whitehall was him next to Jane Seymour, who he considered his, you know, his perfect wife because she gave him a son. So even Henry in his own lifetime perpetuated the idea that jane was without fault now i think jane also in a way suffers from very little is known about her so there's way more known about her brothers especially after her death and they come in to more power as guardians of her son and and more influential in government so it's one of those things where it's easy to see jane as you know this perfect sainted wife, because there's just not that much else known about her.
1: Right, right. So after she passes, Henry is just, you know, devastated, and he needs to find a new wife now. So here we are at Anne of Cleves, and I couldn't feel more awful for this woman. Um, She is portrayed as He found her to be ugly and smelly and all these things. And I already can think of a few historians who, you know, get so angry about this and can actually dispel these rumors. But let's clear up some of the misunderstandings about Anne of Cleves. Where did that all come from?
0: So I'm actually writing a biography of Anne of Cleves. So this one is is close to my heart, I will say. Um, The idea that she was ugly came from... June and July, 1540. So Henry marries her in you know January 6th, 1540. Holbein had painted her in August of 1539, the year prior. He brings the paintings back. Henry falls in love with the paintings, agrees to go ahead. And even the Holbein miniature that's at the Victorian Albert Museum most likely was made that small size so Henry could keep it on his person and look at it. And kind of convince himself that he was in love with this woman. Because you have to think that for his three previous marriages, he knew the women before he married them and fell in love with them before he married them. And I think in a way, him looking at the Holbein portrait, the big or miniature, was his way of falling in love with Anne. So at the time of their you know, clandestine meeting on January 1st and their wedding there's no outward sign that Henry is displeased. You know, their meeting didn't go quite as he planned when he disguised and surprised her. But the idea that he found her ugly or that he liked her not doesn't really show up until the June depositions are are made known. And those are the interviews essentially with his his courtiers, his, his close, you know, friends who said, oh, yeah, he's been complaining about her from the beginning. And then that's reiterated in Thomas Cromwell's Letters from the Tower right before he's executed, where he says, oh, yes, you told me from the beginning, you know, you weren't really pleased with the way that she looked. But we don't have those sources until six months after the fact. And then it really picks up with the Gilbert Burnett history, where he takes this idea from the depositions that Henry liked her not and for the first time calls her the Flanders mayor. And that is where we get that idea took hold. And that's where we get, um, the really popular conception that she was ugly and that everybody thought she was ugly and that Henry couldn't consummate his marriage because he thought she was ugly. And really the sources right at the time of their marriage don't support it. um, so you have to kind of put the pieces together from later sources.
1: So now, obviously, their marriage didn't end up working out, right? So why do you think if if he wasn't, um, you know, completely displeased with her appearance or her smell or whatever the other accusations are, if he wasn't, if those are not true, And we know that their marriage obviously didn't work out because after the annulment, she was known as his sister and he still gave her a home and it wasn't necessarily um, a contentious split. So if it wasn't because of those things that we were just talking about, what was it that made them fall apart?
0: I think a couple of things. So I do think that their first meeting in January had something to do with it. And I think it's because, you know, we think a lot of Henry VIII in some ways is kind of misunderstood too. Or the things that we focus on are he was a tyrant and he was fat and he was mean. But whenever it came to his marital relationships, they all started based on love. And he had this idea of chivalry. So he used to show up in Catherine of Aragon's chambers dressed up in disguise because of the chivalric idea that a maiden would recognize her true love, even if he was disguised, that there would be love at first sight. And he used to do those court masks that kind of perpetuated this idea of dressing up and knowing the person, you know, just from their eyes, you would know the person that you loved. And I think he had convinced himself prior to meeting Anne of Cleves, that they were a love match, that they were going to be in love and that he was going to surprise his lady love. And she was going to look at him and say, yes, this is my, you know, this is my husband. This is who i meant to be with. And when he shows up, it doesn't go that way. And I think it hurt his ego and we all know what happens when something hurts Henry VIII's ego. He doesn't like it very much. So I think in a way he didn't get the reaction he hoped And then there were just other incompatibilities. They didn't have a common language. Um, You know, she only spoke German. He didn't speak German. She didn't speak any other languages. They had to work through an interpreter. And I imagine that when you're trying to connect with a partner who is very different from you culturally and doesn't speak the language, that working through interpreters doesn't really make the romance, you know, happen and blossom. So I think there were lots of things. And then political outside things too, that happened where at the time that he was courting and, or they were negotiating the marriage, his alliance to Cleves and by association, the Small Caldic League was very important, but it wasn't as important by mid fifteen forty. So there's lots of things that went into it where I just don't think they were super compatible or she wasn't Henry's ideal woman like he thought she would be. And then it all just kind of fell apart. But they were able to be amicable later because she didn't fight him like Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn did because she could have and she didn't.
1: She happens to be... My favorite of his wives, but that's neither here nor there (laughs) moving along. Uh, I'm glad that you brought up his, his hurt ego, because I think our next wife did that in a big way. So our next wife is Catherine Howard and he got married to her. She was very young, very naive. And there was obviously the accusation of infidelity Um, I think that one of the misconceptions I wanted to ask you about today that our listeners asked about was her dying words. I don't know if this is something that you could help us understand, but I've heard both confirmations and arguments against her last words having been uh, something along the lines of, you know, I, I die a queen but would would rather die the wife of Culpepper. Is that something that she actually said as she was about to be beheaded?
0: That's a great question. And truly, I don't know enough about Catherine Howard to answer that. So I mean, for Anne Boleyn, we have her scaffold speech. And really, what is maybe her scaffold speech or what people, you know, reinterpreted as her scaffold speech Um, Because several different versions exist. I don't know if Catherine Howard's scaffold speech exists. But that, I mean, it makes for an amazing story that she would go to the scaffold and say that she would rather be, you know, with Thomas Culpepper than Henry VIII. I think she's a really interesting woman who is another one, almost like Jane Seymour, where so little is known about her that it's incredibly easy to sexualize her and agree with, um, you know, the accusations that she uh, deceived the king, that she had multiple sexual partners, and that was treason, and that's that. And it's kind of tidy and able to wrap it up. So you can kind of use the modern idea or the anachronistic idea that she was a whore and it fits. And I, But I think she's one of those people that we don't know enough about and I know in the last 10 years there was there's been more talk of was she actually, you know, sexually promiscuous or was she perhaps the victim of you know, sexual predation instead because she was so young by the time some of these relationships had happened
1: and uh that's a great point. I think that's a really great point for people to consider because again, she wasn't I mean technically she was a woman, but uh, I mean By all accounts, she was still kind of a child. She was a teenager. Yeah.
0: You know, and to have had one or more relationships before being with Henry VIII, you know, you kind of have to think about the circumstances and not always just easily project, you know, these really easy labels onto her.
1: She is an easy one to label. So um, I think that that's, I think that in itself is one of the misconceptions that I'm happy to dispel here today because it really is. People have this idea of her and there isn't even really conversation around correcting it. We just kind of accept it. Right. So, um, okay. And then his last wife, Catherine Parr, I think one of the biggest myths around her is that he married her. Basically, because he was older, this is when this is when he was an over more overweight and he was sick and he had the thing with his leg and all these awful things. Now he just needs a nurse, not a wife. So you know who's great for that? Catherine Parr. Let's marry her. So let's talk about that a little bit.
0: I think that's a really interesting myth because that is one that kind of pervades that Henry VIII by – when did they marry? 1543 – you know, he's older, he's not in great health, he has this ulcer, he's he's overweight, and he needs someone to take care of him. So I think it's, it's, again, it's really easy to be like, oh, well, he married Catherine Parr because she had been married previously, so she obviously knows how to be a wife. You know, she knows how to take care of a husband because her other husbands had died. So it must be that Henry looked at this experience and said, she'll be perfect. You know, she can take care of me. And I think that's a an interesting idea, but I don't know if it always fits with Henry's idea of love and marriage, where that he made five marriages previously because he was in love with someone. And we know that Catherine Parr was friends with Mary. I mean, she was close to Mary's age. Catherine Parr was even named after Catherine of Aragon because Catherine Parr's mother was in Catherine of Aragon's service. And we know that after that Catherine Howard marriage disintegrated, he used to go to Mary's chamber to see Catherine Parr. And I'm not sure he went there to see, you know, her nursing skills. I think he went there because he had feelings for her. And we know as, you know, through their marriage and until Henry's death, that Catherine had a pretty active role. She was a patron. She translated and wrote her own books. She was regent whenever he went to war in France. So she was definitely more than his nursemaid. And there were some, you know, there was a time where she was seen as so reformist that she was threatening and almost removed as queen because she, you know, that was that was definitely not the activity of someone who was just a nursemaid.
1: Exactly, exactly. She was a smart woman and determined and she knew I mean she was a good wife, obviously, but she she had a lot of else to offer other than you know, being his nursemaid. Exactly. So moving on in the Tudor Dynasty here, we are at Mary the First. And this is the one that somehow I just always have just kind of this soft spot for her. And and I really like to discuss just things to clear her name a little bit. I mean, we know her as Bloody Mary, and I feel like we have this misconception about her. That she's this kind of bloodthirsty, you know, murderess. And I've heard, you know, in I've, in other conversations I've had with other historians and things like that that she she liked to dance. She liked to play cards. She wasn't this kind of angry, you know, on this crusade to just kill everybody that wasn't Catholic uh, woman. So I'd like to kind of talk about that because that's actually something that a lot of our listeners wrote in again about, tell us about Bloody Mary and was that really who she was inside or could you kind of give us, put her in a, in a nicer light
0: maybe? So, I mean, Mary's absolutely my favorite queen to work on. She's who I've worked on the most. And I will tell you right now that I absolutely hate the term Bloody Mary. And I actively fight against trying to make that myth and idea go away So yes, were Protestants burned during her reign? Absolutely. Was it abhorrent? Yes. Was it uncommon? No. So right there, you know, that was a practice accepted in her time. Whether or not it was the right thing to do or agreeable, you know, it existed. But that idea of her as Bloody Mary didn't come about until Elizabeth's reign. So when you look at Mary... From the time she was born, she was de facto Princess of Wales. She was betrothed to multiple European kings and even at one point the Holy Roman Emperor. She was very well educated. She was smart. She picked up how to be a queen and a ruler from both her mother and father. She was suppressed under Edward, she was out of favor under her father. And at the time of her accession, she fought a coup and won. So there's definitely more to Mary than just the bloody idea. But it really is a result, the perpetuation of this is really a result, I think, of the popularity of Elizabeth I. And in some ways, the awful idea and pattern that in order for one sister to be a success, the other one must have been a failure. So often Elizabeth and Mary are pitted against one another, or Mary is used as a foil for Elizabeth. So in order to explain why Elizabeth is so great, it's because Mary sucked. And that is an idea that we absolutely have to get away from. So in some ways, it's great to compare the sisters. You know, their life experiences were similar. They had mothers who were divorced. They They were bastardized. They were not always in favor. They were imprisoned and they had lots of shared life experience. But then when you go to understand them as queens, it's not always beneficial to compare them because their experiences as queens were so different. Mary chose to marry because she knew that one role of a queen, consort or regnant, was to perpetuate the dynasty. And the only way she could do that was by having a baby in wedlock. But it was Mary who actually said first, I would rather die a virgin, but I understand I have a job to do. So I think that that's why we have the myth of Bloody Mary, but there's absolutely so much more to her reign and her personality in terms of culture, in terms of art, in terms of music. And even when you think about her she was a really, really important European queen, not just an English queen. So through her marriage, she was queen of Spain, of Naples, a, um, ruler of Jerusalem, duchess of all kinds of places. I mean, her title has, you know, 12 or 14 territories after it. So she was important. She she had a big part to play in European politics. And really, her reputation did not suffer until her marriage with Philip. And that did lead to a pretty big breakdown. Um, And this also really occurred in Elizabeth's reign because of the black legend of Spain and the Armada. And in some ways, Elizabeth and her, her council had to remove themselves from, from Mary and distance themselves because Mary had been married to Philip and Philip became one of Elizabeth's enemies. So there's a lot of politicking at play too, which is a really long answer to to your question. I'm sorry.
1: No, that's a great answer. I actually was, I want to thank you for all of that because I can, first of all, I can definitely hear the passion in your voice when you talk about Mary the I. First. And I, I think that she needs, she needs someone like you on her side. <laughs> so it wasn't too long of an answer. That was great. And I think that that's really helpful because a lot of people who don't, you know, and, and no fault of their own, you know, it's fine. But most people don't go out and look for the real thing, you know, the answers. They just kind of accept that, that, that Mary was this monster and, and she really wasn't. And I think that's such an important topic when you brought up how they'd have to pit the sisters against each other. I, I've never thought of it that way, but that's really a great point. That you have to, you know, to build one up, you have to tear the other one down. And that's terrible. That's terrible because it's unnecessary. They both could have been revered in their own ways um, as queens. So speaking of the sisters, though, here we are at Elizabeth. And again, I just keep saying this over and over. There's so many things that we can discuss when it comes to Elizabeth. We know her as somebody that was quite vain, um, I mean, when we see her in portrayals you know in the movies and things, she has all the makeup and the wigs and the dresses and so we see her as someone that was vain and jealous a lot because she had all these people that were potentially threats um, put to death and or imprisoned and things like that. but I think that the biggest thing about her, obviously we know her as the virgin queen and She obviously took a different route than Mary the First. She did not want to, well, I wouldn't say she wouldn't, she didn't want to perpetuate the dynasty, but she didn't want to maybe give up um, any of her own power to a husband, which probably would have happened if she had gotten married. So let's talk then about one of the biggest um, misunderstandings or misconceptions or rumors about her, about her virginity. She did have a couple of favorites. Um, And is there any uh, evidence to prove or disprove her virginity or what, you know, what she, for lack of a better term, used these favorites for? You know, were they friends? Were they more than friends? Did it stop anywhere? Um, Or was she open about how she felt about them?
0: I think... The idea of Elizabeth's virginity very much ties to what we earlier talked about, was Catherine of Aragon a virgin at her wedding night? Because you just assume the natural progression of things is get married, have sex, have a baby. And that's just, you know, the order of things. So I think for Elizabeth, it's that same thing where, okay, will we ever know? You know, is it ever written down somewhere that she wasn't a virgin? Probably not. You know, and if it was, it hasn't been found yet, but probably not. That would never be, you know, recorded like in her secret diary. I lost my virginity last night. But it's one of those things that is so hard to comprehend that how could a woman with this much power who was supposed to be, you know, good looking, who had these men always around her, it's very hard to conceive that she didn't want more from them besides friendship. And I think that's where the idea of Elizabeth not being a virgin comes from. You know, how is it possible that she didn't go all the way with some of these men? You know, and that's where you get those other myths that she had the secret baby. And, you know, the, because that's what would happen if she would have had relations with some of her favorites. So I think it's another one of those stereotypes that maybe gets really rooted in, in a gender bias. You know, females were supposed to be weak and sexual and lustful. So there's no way you could have had a woman who, you know, was a virgin for the first 25 years of her life and was queen for 45 years, surrounded by men who didn't have sex with one of them.
1: Did people question her then? Or do do we just kind of focus on that now? Because we know that she, was, she has this this, um, name as the Virgin queen and she's known for being a virgin yet she, you know, Dudley and Devereaux and all these men, did people during her time question her relationships with these guys or is it only us doing it now?
0: I think we really focus on it now. Um, because it's one of those things that, you know, does seem almost impossible or that makes her incredibly unique. And that she did not marry and did not, and chose not to have children. But you have to think that until about 1570, she actively looked for a person to marry. So she did engage in courtship and she did have, you know, the Duke of Anjou, her little frog. And she did probably seriously think about marriage, but at the same time, seriously thought about, you know, the consequences of childbirth the consequences of miscarriage the the potential for um looking at the marriage of her sister and philip ii the consequence that what would that mean for her as a as a woman as a queen for england as a political nation i'm sure that she had because of her sister and father and previous examples lots of ideas in her head of what would it mean to get married? So I think she actively looked to get married and then eventually chose not to. And the idea of virgin queen then kind of popped up around 1570, where she was clearly, you know, past what anybody would consider the age to have a child. But there were questions during her lifetime. And she was aware of them and whether or not they would have been as overt as, you know, there's no way the queen isn't having sex with these people. You know, she understood that she couldn't marry some of her favorites because, um, you know, was it Devereaux whose, whose wife, you know, died falling down the stairs and he said, great, we're free to marry. And she said, absolutely not. People will accuse me of having had a part in that. You know, and- she, Right, right. Dudley was, was- right, Dudley. Yeah, and it would yeah. damage her reputation. So I think- the idea that she wasn't pure or acting, you know, virginally, did exist, and she was aware of how it affected her reputation.
1: You had mentioned that that she was actively looking for a husband at first, and then kind of stopped. Um, when when did that transition occur?
0: I think it was around 1570. So the first time she was really called the Virgin Queen was in 1570. And it was in a book. And of course, I don't remember it. But it was someone put this guy put together a book of these like lamps of virginity. And it was basically famous women. And many of them had died as martyrs. And he put Elizabeth on the title page and kind of used her as the ultimate example of female womanhood, you know, singular female womanhood. And at that point, the idea of her as the Virgin Queen kind of stuck. You know, the, the marriage negotiations had stalled. And she by that time would have been in her 40s, maybe. So there was not that much expectation that she would be able to even have a child if she did get married. And I think that was probably more or less their turning point was the 1570s, where, you know, she was no longer really actively looking for a husband, and nobody expected her to have a baby. But two, I think she really realized like there was just so much politically to go into it. And she understood that even if she would have had a child or at that point named an heir, which she was very reluctant to do, that that heir or that person becomes someone whom other people rally around and could use against her, much in the same way that Elizabeth herself had become a rallying point for the Wyatt Rebellion um, you know, during her sister's reign and she knew what that was like. And I don't think that she wanted to, you know, she chose to kind of dissemble so as not to constantly have someone, you know, waiting in the wings who could take her place.
1: I wanted to thank you so much for talking about these queens with us today, helping us kind of get out of some of these misunderstandings. It's been really an enlightening conversation, and I'm so happy to have you, Valerie. Thank you again. And before I let you go, I wanted to just kind of give everybody a little teaser about what's coming next for you. I know that you had mentioned a book about Anne of Cleves, um, so if you want to talk a little bit about that, or if there's anything else in in the pipeline that we should look out for,
0: sure. Uh, first, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I, I think we could talk uh, misunderstandings and myths all day. Um, I do have lots of projects in the works. So one is this biography of Anne of Cleves. I have some other edited collections coming up. So one that will be out this year is on Mary and Jane Grey and what happened in those first six months and kind of how they're understood as queens opposite one another. So I'm really excited about that.
1: That's going to be a great one. I look forward to that.
0: Um, I have another edited collection on Mary and humanism coming up. So continental humanism and really showing how Mary fit into The learning and renaissance ideas of her time, both in England and outside of England. And then another one on um, Tudor myths. So I mean, this really fits in with what we're talking about today.
1: You are a busy lady. So thank you so much for giving us your time. You've got so much going on. Uh, What about things that are already out? Are there is there any way we can support you?
0: Sure. So um, I have two monographs, uh, both on Mary. So the first one came out in 2015, and my second monograph on um, Princesses Mary and Elizabeth Tudor came out in 2021. Last year, I had a two-volume set uh, edited collection on Mary I come out on her in literature and writing, all the way from literature in her own time up to modern um, historiographical novels. So you can visit my website and find information about um, books. And I do have some articles coming out this year on Mary and her accession. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty busy, but I, I love talking about these queens.
1: Awesome. Well, we love talking to you about these queens, and we'll definitely have you back. So good luck with everything. Good luck with all that stuff coming out. I will let you, ha- I will let you get back to work, first of all, my goodness. You're probably one of the busier uh, authors that we've had on here. So congratulations on that. So again, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for writing in with all of your questions and all of your um, comments about our misunderstood queens. And of course, thank you again to Valerie for joining us and taking time out of your busy schedule. As always, we appreciate everyone's support. We hope you'll tune in again next time as we continue to ask our experts the pressing questions you want answered. If you love the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and you want to show even more support, please consider becoming a patron where you'll not only receive the great content we offer now, but extra insider research, information, prizes, and of course, other exciting opportunities that you can only find by subscribing. So until next time, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.